Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Dr. Jenny Sorkin on the show. Dr. Sorkin is an associate professor of history of art and architecture at University of California, Santa Barbara. Dr. Sorkin writes about the intersection between gender, material culture, and contemporary art. Her most recent book is Art in California, published in 2021, as a part of the World of Art series. As a state, California is the site of tremendous diversity in the visual arts and has been at the forefront of cultural production through the 20th century. We cover a broad range of topics in this conversation, and I honestly feel like this conversation could have gone on twice as long, given all the fascinating insights and history in her book. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jenny Sorkin. Dr. Sorkin, your book was fascinating to me in so many ways. I love kind of big picture survey books that can kind of give you scope. Sometimes I feel like we miss context and it's really helpful to have a book like this that gives us context to the history of art in a region. I want to talk at first about kind of scope, size, sources, impetus for writing, those kinds of things. Why is the book so short? The book is short because I had... I wanted specifically to publish it in this series. This is a prestigious series called The World of Art. It's done out of a British publisher called Thames and Hudson. They've largely been publishing, they've been publishing surveys for <clears throat> since World War II. They're, it's a paperback series. They have lots of color images and they also don't use footnotes. And so I wanted a larger, more democratic space for my readership. And I felt that this was the best option. If I went with a longer style and footnotes and a university press, I felt I wasn't going to have the same possibility of a, a broader readership. Okay. Where do you imagine this book being used? Kind of intro art history survey courses, people that just want kind of general picture of art history in California. What's kind of when you envision your mind, who's using this book and for why? What do you think? I wrote it as a survey book to use in my own classes, but it was really a kind of rejoinder to my California students. I teach at UC Santa Barbara, a large public research university that's both Hispanic serving and Asian American Pacific Islander serving. And 96% of our student body is from California. And so I always have students who say, come to my office and they want to study abroad or they want to go to New York or they're so bored by California. And this really book started as my initial rejoinder to them of there is all this art in your own state that you are completely unaware of and you think there's no art here. Mm -hmm. So that was, it started in this very low level way. And I've been teaching an art in California class since 2015 and realized that all of my source materials came from exhibition catalogs, from borrowing from history journals, and that I didn't have a clear picture myself on how to train students in the history of California. I also train PhD students that are largely working on West Coast materials, partially by my design in the sense that they are largely first-generation college students coming to graduate school. And I think it's <clears throat> much more economical to choose a topic that you can drive to the archive, say. And also art history is really underserved in 
West Coast American materials. There's just much more historical work that's been taking place on the East Coast that has happened on the East Coast. And I also train a lot of artists and I wanted artists in this state. So I work with contemporary living artists. I think that there's a lot of contemporary arts work that's happening. This is a really boom moment for a place like Los Angeles. And I, I want contemporary artists and practitioners to also be able to have a book within grasp that they might be able to use or benefit from. And that readership largely doesn't care about footnotes or the nitty gritty of, you know, a lot of historical material in the weeds. So my next question is kind of ironic given what I just asked, but did you have a rubric or a method prescribed when you started this for who to include and who not to include? Obviously, we're talking about students thinking that there's not much art here, but you and I know that there's so much that you can't possibly all include it in one volume. So did you come at it with any specific method for who to choose? Yes. My initial beginning was that I really wanted to start with the influence of Mexican muralism in the state of California. And so I had initially intended to write this book as a 20th century volume that started in 32 or 29 and went all the way up to the present. And when I actually started doing the research for the project, I realized that in order to make this book as as, as inclusive as possible and as diverse as possible, that I needed to actually go back a generation earlier and start in the teens, the 1910s. And I started um, with the year 1916 as a way to coalesce a group of a situation of change. Carlton Watkins, the famous Yosemite photographer, but he also worked for oil mining interests and he would he was he would take pictures for anybody basically. He was a he was a gut camera for hire. Uh, he dies in 16. It's also the year that Ishi, the so-called last California Indian, dies in a very tragic way in captivity of tuberculosis from exposure to white people and the colonizing effects of his own situation and the state's genocide of, of Native Americans. And then lastly, it's it's just it's a moment of intense change when the national park system takes over the state parks of California. And I felt that was a really important launching moment for federal land happening in California that would make roads and the parks more available to a much wider populace of both people living here, but also tourists. And that that to me became a moment that I could use as a starting date and work forward. And that the including the teens and the 20s was a way to also expand into the history and legacy of Japanese American photographers who were modernists. They were making great abstract black and white pictures. They were in camera clubs all over the West Coast. And many of them ended up in Japanese American concentration camps during World War II and their portfolios have largely gone unrecognized or forgotten or hidden or sitting in an archive at Japanese American museums all over California. Before we jump into the content of the book, I want to talk a little bit about source material. When you're working with artists that are you know, occupying spaces outside of the mainstream or academia, source material can be complicated. Can you talk a little bit about um, your approach to gathering sources for this book? Yes. So this book has something like 500 plus artists that I've covered. And the other piece of publishing in this series is that they really encourage revision. And so there was the possibility that in 10 years or something, 
I could produce a second edition and expand and then thus update the book for a new generation of readers. And so source material is hard to come by when you're trying to write an alternate canon, which is what I feel this book really is invested in. And so in some cases, I contacted artists directly, which I'm really used to doing, having come from museum work. And they were very happy to oblige. They were happy to lend photos. In some cases, I paid for the the photography. But um, it it turns out that many artists are the keepers of their own archives, that they are not housed in libraries or in universities or in special collections, and that they're sitting on a trove of their own materials, and they're very eager to talk about their practices. And I think that it's just that they've been underserved by history and by curators and historians. And and I think that that's one of the hard gathering points in the field of art history is that um, it's easier to just reprint or what's already been shown. And I really wanted to have new images that offered a kind of backbone visually for rethinking this history. So I really strived to utilize images that were less well-known by well-known artists. I selected images. I, I favored BIPOC artists over sort of white male artists who were very well known. And I, in many cases, just used images that nobody had ever seen in print before or were only reproduced in small exhibition catalogs from the 80s or 90s or, you know, things that I I turned up in archives or on museum websites that I, I knew had not been shown before. And so that was a, a real commitment that I was that I'm really proud of featuring in this book. And then the other piece of that is having small biographies that I hired a graduate student of mine to co-write with me, Matthew Lim, so that there was some sensibility of like little tiny blips of of what an artist did, what their practice was the year they were born, so that they too could feel sort of historicized. Yeah, I absolutely love those artist biographies at the end of the book. It was so cool to look through them. And I appreciate all the hard legwork that you put in to to gather all this material. It is an amazing feat that you've accomplished. I want to jump into landscape painting first, because that's one of the things you hit early on. Do you think landscape painting or landscape art or photography is in some ways underrated because we only really see a few different forms of it in a lot of the textbooks that we get, you know, Albert Bierstadt kind of forms of landscape painting? I do think it's, it's, I think it's overrated and underrated, I guess. I would say that there's a combo there. I think it's a really, it's not a controversial teaching subject unless you are willing to wade into settler colonial politics. And I think that that's only been very recent in American history courses and in American art history courses. And now that is the primary means or way of thinking about these early landscape paintings is to reframe them as uh, colonialist and as a form of manifest destiny from the 19th century. And so I think Ansel Adams is currently being reframed through that lens as well. And so I did want to very much rejoin um, landscape photography and landscape painting because I'm not sure why they were ever broken apart. It seems to me a kind of ongoing apparatus with just a different set of tools. But I really was eager to try to find, I live in Santa Barbara, and this is a town that has still not moved past plain air or sort of California impressionist outdoor easel painting. (laughs) All, All over coastal California, you can still find these kind of amateur slash professional 
landscape painters. It's it's a it's a thing. And it's, it's like a- those galleries in Carmel that you go into, and it's just yeah. all that kind of one form of art. Absolutely. Yes. And so I feel like there's also something interesting about that practice. And that if I had had more space, I would have liked to have really touched on when I give talks about this book, I include it. But I had a kind of restricted word count of basically 5000 word chapters. And so everything had to be very compressed within those chapters. And I went over in the first two chapters, but I was pretty much held to it in the rest of them. And I, I also feel like that's the general reading public is not going to read more than 20 or 25 page chapters. And that if I really was eager to have a broad audience, I had to sort of hold myself to that limit. But the landscape painting that continues today of this legacy of 19th century or early 20th century impressionism is still alive in the 21st century. And it is still done with absolutely, you know, by hobbyists with no sensibility of the larger history or that they are thinking about land use. They're just thinking about beauty and color and light. And so I think that that's something really interesting to still reflect upon of how we really haven't changed so much in a hundred years. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up colonialism because I want to talk about the different approaches that landscape artists took. So how, how would you contrast the kind of intent of someone like Albert Bierstadt with someone like Obata? What, what is, what is, what is he approaching or what is his motives in how he represents landscape? I think Obata has a sensibility of uh, kind of a wide open approach to an embrace of America and, and an embrace of the California West and the beauty of the mountainscapes. And he did spend a lot of time hiking specifically in Yosemite and painting Yosemite through this kind of Eastern lens of painting on silk sometimes and using a, a kind of stain method or using woodcuts that he he would help. He would choose a master woodcutter to help him print after carving into the, the blocks. But I do think that there's this really spiritual kind of belief system that he's trying to convey in, in, a, in trying to merge East and West sensibilities in his own practice. He's teaching on the West Coast. He's a faculty member. He's the first faculty member of color at Berkeley. He ends up in a a concentration camp where he starts an art school. Um, And then once he is released, he goes back to his teaching job at Berkeley. But he's not a... And we could say that all of that is a form of, of politicization. Like we could try to politicize his practice, but he did not politicize his practice. He looked at it as... I think he thought of himself as a kind of cultural ambassador from the East to the West. And he never fully gave up his his Japanese forms of sort of calligraphic, you know, there's kind of calligraphy at times on his paintings. And he does have an Eastern sensibility, but I think that he's very different in the sense that he is not trying to convey, while he and Bierstadt are both trying to convey, convey ideas of the sublime, I think Bierstadt knows that his paintings are going to circulate in a way that promotes corporate interests, business interests, land surveying, geological surveying, and all of the kinds of extraction policies that come to the West. He initially joins one of these geological surveys to paint in Colorado before he comes to California. He makes a famous early painting ahead of the Yosemite paintings called Lander's Peak, 
outside Denver. And, and I just, I think it's a different sensibility that, that has a much more business acumen set behind it. I don't think Obata was particularly invested in sales in the same way. It is interesting to contrast kind of like some of the major figures that have represented Yosemite. Ansel Adams is very prolific in terms of how many reprints and the presence of those photos of Yosemite. And then you have someone like Bierstadt who kind of set this like big picture image for this manifest destiny period. And then you have someone like Obato who's kind of, I think, a little bit more intimate. Which of those three do you prefer in terms of how they represent Yosemite? I, I have to say I like the gamut. Okay. I like that there is a, a kind of precedence and different forms of responsiveness to Yosemite. I guess I personally would prefer Obata's approach of the intimacy, but I also think when you go to Yosemite now, it is really hard to have an intimate experience. It's overrun by tourists. It's overrun by people with their cameras and their phones. It's hard to have a spiritual experience in a national park unless you choose a, a much less touristed trail or you're a really experienced hiker, which I'm not. And, and, and I, I think that I guess I admire all three of them for the fact that they got to experience this space when it was much less trafficked. Mm -hmm. We live in a different California. Absolutely. Let's talk about photography now. Can you describe what pictorialism is and then how we transition from it to straight photography? Yes. Pictorialism is a, an early form of photography that is seeking to compete with or be recognized by the fine arts world as on par with painting. And so it is a soft focus, soft lens in which the images are not crystal clear. They often have a kind of narrative or mythological or classical um, bent to them. They're often set up and many people would photograph sort of women in long flowy dresses posed as goddesses or recreate poems from Lord Tennyson. There's, I guess there's a whole layer of artifice to pictorialism that is kind of fascinating and has fallen out of favor because of the move to crisp, modernist, sort of photograph it like it is imagery that Adams and Edward Weston and the F64 group, which really does start in California, which is one of the key arguments I'm trying to convey here is that modernism can really be attributed to California photography and not to the East Coast. But pictorialism also has a kind of hand in thinking about artifice and camera shots that influenced strongly the way early cinema is experienced as well. And so that's why I included somebody like William Mortensen, who's been very overlooked. He was a Laguna-based photographer in Orange County who was a pictorialist. He remained one. And he fell out of favor because of that. And he would shoot for, he shot early screen artists like Fay Ray, often her in King Kong sort of images. And he also worked as an early cinematographer on sets of early Hollywood mo movies. And so I felt like he was a, he was a perfect foil because in, in actuality, he and Ansel Adams traded barbs throughout their time in the magazine, the camera magazine world of, of the 20s and 30s. Yeah, I was wondering about including film and cinema in this section. And how do you see the relationship to the movements within photography versus film? 
I think, so I deliberately left film out of this book because I also feel that there are so many cinephiles who are so much more qualified than I am to do that kind of work. And there is a lot of work on early Hollywood already out there by film scholars. And that if I were going to include that, it was going to immediately detract from the history of the visual arts. And so I did write how I was leaving it out in the introduction as a way to showcase my own sort of decision making. I think early cinema is really fascinating. I'm a big fan of the weird silent film culture (laughs) of the teens and 20s, but I also don't know enough about it. And I'm not a film studies scholar. And so I, I felt like Mortensen was as close as I could come. And I'm still waiting for somebody to take him up and do him justice. The The Orange County, not the Orange County Museum, the Laguna Art Museum did a small show last year that was quite good, but they did not publish a catalog, which is unfortunate. Yeah, those early silent films are fascinating. I love Metropolis and some of those early ones that just kind of are such... You know, very it felt pictorial to me when I watched them and how they set up, you know, settings and environment. Let's transition to talking now about muralism, which I have a bunch of questions on this and it's a big interest to me. Why does it seem that murals are some of the most politically charged art forms? That's a very good question, Jordan. I think that for the three Mexican muralists who came north between 29 and 32, this was the some of the first very political art that American artists and California artists were encountering. They had not lived through the same kind of political disruptions, civil war, social unrest that the Mexicans were experiencing all during the late 18. 18- 90s and into the teens of the 20th century. And we had relative calm other than World War I, and we never had fighting on our own soil. And so uh, that is why you could be a California impressionist to some degree, because you didn't have to think about civil war the way the Mexicans did. And so the Mexicans politicized out of necessity, and they really had stakes in their practice in trying to create a space for social uplift, create a space for valuing indigeneity um, in a very classed, class stratified society. And those values came with them north. And for young muralists or wannabe painters in their teens and 20s who were experiencing them at the California School of Fine Arts for the first time in San Francisco. I think this was extremely exciting to understand that your work could have stakes and that you could politicize your practice and that muralism was one of the primary ways you could do that because it had such a public import and it would always, for the most part, be on some kind of an exterior wall. Mm. So it's a little bit about who was doing the murals, but also where the where these murals would be located. So that was kind of the the intrinsic feature of the medium that led to its politicization. Yeah, would you I think say that's, that's accurate. A, yes, I would, and I think that's a really good point that that the medium certainly lent itself to many viewers to a kind of democratic viewing space and also a sensibility of permanence in public permanence in a way that had not been seen outside of commemorative monumental sort of sculpture, like generals sitting on bronze horses. Hmm. 
There's so many murals that I would want to talk about, So, I'm, but I'm just going to focus on one for now, one that was interesting to me because I lived in Claremont for a while and I actually got to see it in person. Can you talk a little bit about the history and context of Orozco's, and I think I'm saying it correctly, mural at Pomona College? Yeah. So Orozco is the first Mexican muralist to cross the border and come north. He starts in Texas and then he ends up in California and is invited by a faculty member and students at Pomona to paint this mural. And he chooses Prometheus as his kind of mythological subject, who is a deity known for bestowing fire upon people. Prometheus becomes a kind of Christ-like figure in the mural. Um, The mural is in a dining hall. Prometheus is depicted nude, which becomes a point of contention once the mural is up. And there are generations of students who either cover his genitals with fig leaves or take those off, but that's painted in later. Orozco is, since this is never an official commission by the college, he, he was supposed to be paid from this kind of quasi student fundraising thing. And he ends up writing on and on. There's a kind of correspondence that he, he never received payment for this. He was fed and housed on site, but he never actually was paid for this mural, it seems, which is really unfortunate. But Prometheus also becomes sort of fire becomes a metaphor for the gift of knowledge, which becomes a larger metaphor for higher education and the the kind of moral and intellectual culture of thinking broadly about humanist traditions on site. And so this is maybe the least political mural in California of, of the three Mexican muralists. And it's the only one that Orozco paints in California, but he does go on to a mural cycle at Dartmouth College on the East Coast at Baker Library there, which is much more political and much more broadly about social contexts. Yeah, I think there's many fascinating things about these politically charged murals, but the relationship between the patrons and, and the painters is the most fascinating thing for me because of a lot of the irony, of course, that a lot of the, you know, heirs of the robber barons and, you know, these important capitalists are funding a lot of this art. Can you talk about just kind of the irony of patron and art and how that relationship worked? So I would say the philanthropy of robber barons like Henry Ford commissioning Diego Rivera to do a mural cycle in Detroit, or these captains of industry commissioning him to, to do a private wall in their eating club, which is he did do that. And I did feature it in the book. I think that this is all the tenuousness of being an artist in America that actually hasn't changed a century later. We do not have good funding for the arts publicly. We still don't. And because there isn't, there there are no public monies in a way, certainly not to bring international artists in the same way that you might fund a local San Francisco artist, that it it becomes reliant as a system upon private philanthropy and the way in which wealthy people are able to sort of whitewash or greenwash their own odious money-making practices by giving money back to the arts, like, you know, Shell Oil sponsoring an art exhibition or the way Philip Morris, the cigarette manufacturer, used to sponsor much of the contemporary art in New York in the 80s and 90s. And that has all fallen away, but I don't think we're in a different position now. I think we are heavily reliant in public 
institutions and in the in the arts in general on private philanthropy and the source of that money is rarely questioned. Yeah. I I mean it's such a it's such a contrast. I would I'm a big fan of opera myself and I was listening to David Rubenstein who's a big promoter of the Metropolitan Opera House in New York talking about how they were planning to fund things and then I'm at the same time reading this bo- this wonderful new book called These Are the Plunderers How Private Equity Wrecks America and you know he's featured prominently in that book and I just have this contrast in my mind of this this person that's funding this thing that's so valuable and important at the same time plundering other parts of America to fund it and you just it's it's I I don't know what the way forward is but it's there's certainly a problem here and it's kind of like something we just have to sit with I guess the the sad contradiction there can you let's transition to talking about institutions and changes that happened with World War II so who are some of the most important wartime immigrants that changed the direction of California art oh let's see I would say that there's a a potter, a functional potter named Marguerite Wildenhain, who is Bauhaus trained, who ends up in Northern California. She establishes her own pottery after being dissatisfied teaching at California College of Arts and Crafts. She is Bauhaus trained. She is also in direct contact and has a deep friendship with Truda German Prey, who is also of German origin and was not Bauhaus trained, but teaches at Black Mountain College and has a similar kind of deeply European abstract Bauhaus-like training as a weaver. And many of these artists that I'm getting at are craft-based artists. And that is one of my own personal sort of specializations is craft histories. And I really wanted to, initially, I thought I would devote a whole chapter to craft history because it's so key in California. And this is really one of the origin points for thinking about modernist craft practices in textiles and ceramics, in woodworking, in furniture design. And Uh, It is never talked about contemporaneously with painting and sculpture. Painting and sculpture and photography always win out and all of these other mediums fall away. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to add them back in and I decided not to put it as its own chapter and to really take the field at face value, which is to add it in alongside And so that is what I did. I I embedded histories of jewelry, for instance, alongside histories of modernist painting. And so for me, it was a way of trying to reconsider the importance of this alternate canon of craft and decorative arts histories that are often only seen in decorative arts departments at museums like the de Young or LACMA in the big institutions and not even any more so much in the small ones. For instance, the Oakland Museum of California has a, an amazing collection of this sort of material and they've largely taken it off view and it sits in storage. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about university training. What were the upsides and downsides for art training to be shifted to the university system? As someone that works for one of these, you probably are front and center to kind of the challenges and the benefits of it. I would say that the university system was a way for artists to professionalize and also train in a place. California's massive expansion using the GI Bill created a lot of new art departments in the 1950s and 60s, which are still considered the kind of golden age of art departments. It's the first time that 
UC Irvine, UC San Diego, many of the Cal States first see both their own campuses switch from being a teacher's college to a four-year university. It's also the introduction of an art department that is degree granting in order to make and mold teachers for a state that is expanding rapidly in population and has a lot of growth. And so I think of it as a really important time period in which to allow for California's artists not to have to seek professional training on the East Coast, not to have to go elsewhere, but to get to stay in their home state and live and work here and make here. And I think making where you have been trained is a really good way of creating generations of communities of artists. And I think that that's a really important legacy from university art training. It causes its own problems in terms of nepotism, in terms of people being handed jobs or or people not becoming maybe limited in their view because they don't see enough and they don't travel. So all those things are also embedded in this history. And it was also university training favored white male artists and white male painters in particular. But I do think that this expansion is still really important and we are still seeing the benefits of those advanced degrees that are put into place all over California. Do you think an inhibited, independent, and more kind of idiosyncratic approaches to art? You know, when you sometimes when you get a school with an influential director or someone that has a certain way of seeing the world and they want to impart that to their students, do you think it had a negative effect in that direction in any capacity? Yes, I do think that there were certainly maestros that had kind of larger than life personalities, somebody like Michael Asher at CalArts and his sort of take on endless conceptual art forms of production that are really hard to translate for a general public. Yeah, all that does exist. But I do think we are now back at kind of a full circle place where there are too many artists with masters of fine arts degrees. There are certainly not enough jobs for them. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I will say is that I think artists are a quick study and they think out of the box naturally. And They have found other ways to translate their skill sets, many times in a communal way, making art with communities or doing something more social practice related, becoming graphic designers, finding other ways ways to teach in the public school systems across the state. Those art budgets aren't cut yet. But I think that that artists are very good at transitioning their skills and, and everybody doesn't need to be and doesn't want to be a kind of solo practitioner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially, in a, especially in a world where there's not a, you know, a clear system of patronage to support artists and in, in the ways that that has been in the past, there needs to be alternative methods of making money. Absolutely. Um, occasionally, I'm going to ask you questions about who you'd prefer. Do you prefer the abstract figuration of someone like Bernice Bing or the hard lines of someone like, I'm going to try my best to say his name, Loiser Fadelson? Uh, Larissa Feidelson. Okay. I, I like them both. I guess I would say I really like Bing's story. She was a Chinese American lesbian who painted abstractly in San Francisco and she's her her career is still being recovered, whereas Larissa Feidelson had a much bigger presence in his own heyday and now is largely forgotten. I do love his hard-edged abstraction. I think it's quite beautiful. But I guess I would say I like her story better and maybe his paintings better some of the time. Okay. So, I'm um, go. so how did 
structural racism limit the career of someone like Noah Purfoy? And what beautiful furniture did we miss out on because of that? No, Perfoy, thank you for bringing him up, is an artist who is part of a generation called the Second Migration. He was born in a small town in Alabama. He was educated there. He goes, he manages to go and get himself a degree in a kind of Jim Crow era South at, a, at an HBCU. And he comes to California for more opportunity. And he goes back to school on the, on the GI Bill at Otis College of Art and Design as the first Black student that they accept into their program. He learns woodworking or he expands his woodworking practice and he becomes a high-end furniture maker who does not have access to any patronage and can't find a way to scale up his work to make money at this manufacturing. He has a social work background, so he takes a job at the Watts Tower Art Center, which is a kind of fledgling alternative art space that was meant to preserve Simon Rodia's Watts Towers that were going to be torn down. And then the Watts riots happen, and it really alters his practice profoundly because he sees this Black oppressed neighborhood destroyed. And he starts collecting kind of detritus from the streets of the riot um, and making these assemblage sculptures. And his practice radically changes. He he knows he's he can't make a living as a furniture designer. I don't think he wants to probably after that moment. And he turns his practice into this engaged space of community building and sort of African-influenced assemblage sculpture. And then he eventually leaves Los Angeles altogether and starts his own kind of museum out in the desert in Joshua Tree. And we can see him as a pioneering Black artist who flees the city for a desert space in which he can maybe spread his wings professionally and size up, scale up in a way he never could in his furniture, make big, weird sculptures, and also sort of create a, a, a community out there when it was really not popular and not hipster as it is now. Yes. I'm glad you brought up the Watts Towers because that's what I was going to bring up next. What was What was the origin of that creation? And then why did the city want to tear it down? The origin was Simon Rodia was an Italian immigrant who is what we would call a self-taught artist or outsider artist, or the newer term is outlier artist. He started building the Watts Towers in what is now South Central Los Angeles, but at the time was a very agricultural space where people kept cattle and goats in the 20s. He kept some farm animals and he started building this massive outdoor structure using bits and pieces of rebar and tile and concrete. And then it just grew and grew over a kind of 30-year period from 1921 to about 1955. He eventually passes away. He leaves it to the city. Nobody knows what to do with it. And the city wants to tear it down as a kind of weird eyesore. They don't know what to do with it. And because of because the black community in South Central takes it over and protects it, and they start a jazz festival around it. There's a Watts jazz festival that happens on that site. It grows into a kind of cultural space for the black community in Watts. And it remains that way now because of this kind of caretaking in that neighborhood that I think okay. is really important. My next two questions both have personal motivations. So the first one is about San Francisco State. What role did ethnic studies and that university play in the art scene in the Bay Area? 
that to me was a, a space of a lot of research that I had to perform because there really just wasn't enough material on it. It's It really has happened in the form of documentaries, ethnic studies documentaries, but I had to teach myself the history of ethnic studies there because I didn't feel that there was any space for it culturally in the visual arts, certainly, and in art history. And that the artists who came out of protesting the lack of ethnic studies at San Francisco State University, which I'm going to guess is your alma mater, Mm. persevered. And that protest galvanized a group of students across the Bay. It's initially the Black Student Union, and then they form this intersectional group that's called the Third World Liberation Front. And over the winter of 68, they they organize protests and walkouts that gets them or yields ethnic studies as an invention of California academia specifically. And that idea has taken off across America, where we do have ethnic studies programs in other states, but it originates in California. And I really wanted to emphasize that because American studies, Chicanx studies, or Latin American studies, or Mexican American studies, or Black studies, all of that originates as a space within the academy of support and inclusion for non-white artists to find a kind of home, if you will, on college campuses. And I think that that's a really important invention of California's students and student protesters and largely the non-white communities across California that galvanized to do this work. My second somewhat personally motivated question is that my partner comes from a Mennonite tradition and I am constantly surrounded by quilts and was fascinated to see the quilt by Faith Ringgold the double Dutch quilt. Do we need more edgy quilting? It seems like it's one of the most conservative art forms. Uh, There is edgy quilting and there is a lot of, there were a lot of black quilt makers like Rosie Lee Tompkins circulating in the Bay in the sixties and seventies. I ended up not, I couldn't figure out where to include her. And if I expanded this book, I would include her. But Berkeley Art Museum now has a huge quilt collection that will go on display sometime in the next two years that they're sifting through. They were through a donor who collected crazy quilts largely by black church ladies. And it's been a practice that is is really under the radar. And strip quilting is much more popular in the black community than in white communities that are really devoted to log cabin patterning or the, the, the kind of more traditional patterns that you see, which is what you're referring to, that maybe come out of the Midwest and are not edgy, but are quite beautiful. And so... I do think there's a lot of really great textile practices happening in the state, but again, underfunded, under the radar, and always in danger of being closed in craft programs are some of the easiestly, like they are the first dismissed programs in art schools because they are seen as liabilities like glass blowing or ceramics because they they take a lot of heat and equipment and electricity, and it's easy for deans to just cancel those programs. Yes. Believe it or not, once a year I attend a quilt auction, which is as riveting as it sounds. Let's talk a little bit about performance art. I have a hard time with performance art. Maybe you can help me. I don't understand completely why it's not a kind of a subgenre of theater. It seems like there's some like in the Venn diagram, there's a lot of kind of interrelationship between those two art forms. Can you kind of conceptualize both what it is independent of something like theater? And then who are some of the practitioners in California that you found most interesting? So performance art is an 
it started as an anti-theatrical subculture within visual arts production that largely launches right around the same time as video art because you could film your own performances and you could also do a performance yourself in your own studio. You could do it in the nude. You could be wildly controversial um, and catch it on tape or through photo documentation. And this really alights a lot of feminist artists who have trouble being taken seriously in other disciplines or have already decided that they're over painting and sculpture and photography, that those are masculinist disciplines that don't allow them or give them any wall space or museum space, so to speak. And so um, performance art really becomes a feminist discipline in the 70s in California. And it creates a space for women to really think through and explore their own embodied sensibility of being a woman in the world, being a sexual being, being sexualized. And it comes through the art schools and alternative art spaces like the Women's Building in downtown Los Angeles, where there's a curriculum built around performance and video. And so some of the major practitioners at that moment are Suzanne Lacey, Eleanor Anton in San Diego, a bunch of collaborative groups that form at the Women's Building, like a group called the Waitresses, which a group of four or five women, which all had waitressing backgrounds and would perform in public as a way of a kind of social protest about the treatment of waitresses and the hostility and sexism aimed at them, or another group that grows out of this movement called Mother Art. Uh, which would take their sort of mothering skills to places like laundromats and stage public performances, some of which were scripted and more theatrical, but were about sort of guerrilla theater out in public spaces. And so I think that that's one of the major differences between avant-garde theater, which are usually always on, on staged settings in canned, you know, black box theaters versus people doing this on the sidewalk or in a laundromat or in a, in a parade or out in public. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the transition from galleries to artist initiated spaces. What are some of the effects of that transition and how are, how have galleries been used to exclude? I would say that galleries have been used to exclude because men largely still capture the market. And while there's been a lot of women dealers, which I featured in this book, Many of them were not women friendly and they were not feminist in their own gallery stables or practices. That is, they did not welcome women artists. They did not support them or show their work or help them get museum shows or exposure or patronage. And so I think gallery culture has been very elitist and remains so and is still largely favors forms of abstraction over figuration, over politicization, over art that is about social protest. If we take a 20,000 foot perspective on California art, what would you say are the key markers or patterns in California that distinguish it from other regions within the United States? I would say three key ideas are California's outsized geography, that its geography has determined its artistic culture in many ways in terms of being the sublime landscape, the ocean, the interior mountains, that all of that has really sought to define the ways in which artists wanted to engage the landscape. I think that's been key. I think California's expansive university 
um, and college system, including its community colleges, has created a very hospitable atmosphere for artists to make a professional life as teachers. Also, private high schools have allowed that to happen and flourish. And the fact that finally there is now public funding back online for arts and music in public schools across California. And then I would say the third thing is, is this that there's a kind of, I guess, California as a whole has thumbed its nose for generations at East Coast trends and has instead been less concerned about fitting in with whatever the dominant trends are in New York or previous to that Paris. And artists have really gone their own direction and been incredibly creative and inventive and self-inventive in deciding to remain in California and not worry about what conventions are happening in other more so-called dominant art scenes. Let's close with book recommendations. What are two or three books you'd recommend to the audience that are interested in these topics or adjacent topics? I would say that there's a lot of great, that California art still comes to us in the form of museum exhibition catalogs. And that is a concern of mine in the sense that I'm not sure the general public really engages in reading about California's artists in in museums. But a recent one is the Joan Brown survey that happens at San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. It's a really nice new publication that creates a space for updated scholarship on Joan Brown. And I would say that there's a spate of new books as well on Diego Rivera and on muralism because of a kind of reconceived celebratory space also in San Francisco around Rivera and reshowing his mural practices. So I, I would say we are in a space of reevaluating and reevaluating the mid-century in California. I don't think we've even made it up to the 80s. There's also been a recent new book on Judy Baca that Cal State Northridge produced and a reassessment of Judy Baca's muralist practices as a feminist, as a queer feminist devoted to community building and taking Mexican muralism far in a different direction and in a more progressive direction in the 21st century. Last question. What's next for you? What's the next project you're working on? The next project I'm working on is actually about textile practices and identity politics in the 1990s. I'm reevaluating ideas of textile-based sculpture um, and histories of regionalism and the way in which uh, the 1990s debates around censorship and homophobia in D.C. are somehow reoccurring now. So trying to make links between current contemporary transphobic debates in at the federal and sort of state levels. And I feel like we are having another 1990s moment and that this my stakes are in trying to really break this down for students who didn't weren't around in the 90s and think that this is all new, but it's not. So strange. The 90s feel like yesterday. So thanks again for doing this. I appreciate it. And I think this conversation has been both informative and helpful for people to think about looking at spaces outside of the traditional canon. I appreciate the work that you've done. Thank you so much, Jordan, for inviting me onto your program. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here. And thanks so much for including me and in doing this podcast. It's, it's really a great resource. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating or review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.